Well, good morning, all you beautiful seacoasters. How are you doing this morning? Good, good. Well, the ushers are coming down at the, at the, as I start talking in order to receive the morning offering, so just let pass the bucket, okay? Um, the older I get, the, the more important I realize that relationships are to me in every area of life. My, my wife and I, my wife Tiffany is down here. Tiffany, could you raise your hand and just wave? She's down here. We decided we were going to be very floral today, so she also is wearing a Hawaiian-y thingy. Anyway, um, my wife and I and our kids actually came out because my wife's little cousin got married, and it was a huge family event. Great aunt, great uncle, all sets of grandparents, all sets of first cousins, second cousins galore, and I, I remember talking with my wife's sister's husband, Ryan, my brother-in-law, and he looked at me, and I looked at him, and it was like, wow, this is what family is supposed to be like. Everybody shows up for the important events. And it really is the case that this is what families are supposed to be like because relationships are important. And I'm sure that you realize not only with your family and your friendships that relationships are important, but uh, in, your, in your work life. You know, we spend a lot of time at work, and a lot of our friendships come out of the people that we work with. I'm the executive editor of Influence Magazine, which is a leadership publication for Christian pastors. And I work with four great colleagues who are editors and designers, and we have a good time. But, you know, I also get to meet writers and pastors and others who contribute to the magazine. And it really is important to cultivate those relationships because if you're an editor, you need writers who have something good to say. And I think we all recognize that in our personal life and in our professional life, relationships are important. But I've noticed that many Americans don't see the importance of relationships in their spiritual life. In fact, I'm not the only person to have noticed this. 30 years ago, Robert Bella, a famous sociologist, wrote a book called Habits of the Heart in which he talked about American attitudes about spirituality, among other things. And he interviewed one woman named Sheila who sort of encapsulated a very American attitude about spiritual living, spirituality, your spiritual life. And she said, um, spirituality is just my own little voice. It's not about church. It's not about doctrine. It's not necessarily about other people. It's just about me. And her name was Sheila. And she herself referred to her spirituality as Sheilaism. And so she defined where she was going on the spiritual journey, and she did it pretty much alone. And folks, from a practical perspective, and definitely from a biblical perspective, I want to say that the spiritual journey that God invites you to take is not something that you make up or that you take alone. God sends Jesus Christ in the world to forgive us of our sins, to fill us with the Holy Spirit so that we can become more like Christ in our moral character, and to lead us through life's journey so that at the end we spend eternity with God. That's the spiritual journey that God invites us to take. And not only do we take that journey with Christ, who makes it possible and leads us along the way, but guess what? Jesus gives us one another to help on our spiritual journeys. And so today I want to talk to you about four kinds of people that you can meet 
on your spiritual journey. I'm taking these four kinds of people from a list of names that Paul gives in the final chapter of his letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 16. If you have your Bible or a device with a Bible app on it, like I've got today, just open it up to Romans 16, and I'll be pointing out some verses as we go through that. It's interesting, there's a lot of things about relationships in the New Testament. What I love about Romans 16 is that Paul names names. He names 27 people in his social network by name, and then there are others who are unnamed but that are alluded to. And Paul has this dense social network of people whom he loves and is loved by and who make his spiritual journey possible and rich. And I want to talk about those relationships today because they're not all the same kind of relationship. So four kinds of people that you meet on your spiritual journey. We're going to talk about patrons, peers, protégés, and pains. We'll get to that at the end. So let's talk about protégés. I mean, patrons. Protégés is the third point. Just in case you're following anybody here, an outline taker, I don't want to mess up anybody in their outline, all right? So let's talk about patrons. Patrons are the people who make your spiritual journey possible. And if you look at Romans chapter 16, you look at verses 1 and 2, for example. Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Kencrea, which is a port city of Corinth in Greece. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of God's people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor, or another way to translate that is patron, of many people, including me. Skip down to verse 13. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me. And then finally, verse 23. Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, sends you his greetings. What's interesting about this is that Paul starts off by talking about a deacon and a patron named Phoebe. Sometimes we get the mistaken impression that Paul is a male chauvinist. Actually, if you look at the list of names he gives in Romans 16, about one-third, 10 of the 27 people, are women. And they include Phoebe, who was an officer of some kind in the church at Kincreae. And she was also a benefactor, which probably indicates that she was a higher social class, wealthier person, who out of her own financial resources provided for the church and for the poor within the church. And so Paul uses these two terms to describe her, a term that indicates formal leadership and also a term that indicates a relationship where she uses her resources to help others. And that term that he uses is either, we can translate it as benefactor and patron, was very common in Greco-Roman society. Because in Roman society, you, you had what are called patron-client relationships. How many want to do a little classical sociology with me today? Just raise your hand. Yeah, that's what I thought. Nobody likes classical sociology. So instead, we'll talk about the movie The Godfather. You're all familiar with The Godfather. Opening, which is actually a brilliant take on classical sociology. So the opening sequence of The Godfather, of course, The Godfather, Marlon Brando, you know, is talking with Amerigo uh, Bonacera, whose name literally means goodbye, America. That's what his name means, Amerigo Bonacera. And Amerigo Bonacera has a good Italian daughter who's been interfered with by some Anglo male. And Amerigo has taken the matter to the, to the white cops. The white cops haven't done anything, so now he's going to the Godfather. And he's saying to the Godfather, do something about this. 
Now, in the sort of bad Sicilian mafia, mobbish, criminal enterprise kind of way, this is what a patron-client relationship looked like. A patron was a person who provided protection and material provision to his, or in Phoebe's case, her clients. And what the clients then reciprocated with was assistance, I may ask you a favor, right? And allegiance. And so that was what, in the bad kind of sense, the godfather kind of sense, that was what a patron-client relationship was looking like. And Paul is saying about this woman, Phoebe, she has been a patron for me. At times that I needed open doors or financial resources or help of some kind, she is the one who is a benefactor to me. But not only to me, she has used her wealth, her social status, and her provisions to make provision for the entire church. There are people like that in our spiritual journey. Paul not only mentions Phoebe, he talks about Rufus's mother, he talks about Gaius's hospitality. I like to think that patrons provide material help, they provide hospitality, and they provide emotional warmth. They provide a checkbook, um, heart, and, and they provide help. And, 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 and you look at your spiritual journey, you may see that there are people in there who helped you get started by telling you about Jesus Christ and how he forgives our sins and helps us grow in our moral character. Maybe you found people at a point in your life where you were addicted and you had a sponsor come alongside you and said, God has a better plan for your life than addiction. Maybe there are people who interceded at very key times in your life and said, you know what, I see something in you that needs to be developed because you have potential. That person is your patron. Now, let me tell you a story about, from my own personal life, uh, about a patron. It's 31 years ago. I was a freshman at Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois. And my dad, who was a pastor at a church in Costa Mesa, California, had a friend who was a pastor at Naperville, Illinois, which is a, a city nearby Wheaton. He said, George, I want you to go attend church at this church in Naperville. I think you'll like it. They've got a big college group. I said, okay, dutiful son that I am, I showed up. And this being 31 years ago, I being 18 years of age, I showed up in a suit and tie. How many of you know that 31 years ago you wore suits and ties to church? Yes, that horribly oppressive era in church history, right? Every 18-year-old who grew up in church had a suit and tie. Now, I don't even know if most 18-year-olds have collared shirts anymore, but that's just... Well, I got some resentful 18-year-old males in the room. Boy, that's, that's kind of scary. But anyhow, showed up in a suit and tie. Everybody else was in their Sunday finest. And like a good pastor's kid, I sit in the back row next to the door so I can beat a hasty retreat in case I didn't like it, right? And then in walks this guy, suit and tie, cast on his arm, pregnant wife, and bratty three-year-old kid. And a mullet. I forgot the mullet. Always got to keep in mind the mullet. Business in the front party in the back. Walks in, walks to the pulpit, says, uh, hi, is there a guy named George Wood here? I kid you not. He didn't say anything else. He just walked to the pulpit. Uh, before I get started, is there a guy named George Wood here? And I'm thinking to myself, oh, my dad ratted me out. And so I back row next to the door, raised my hand. He said, I kid you not, this is a quote. I understand that you play guitar. Bring it next week you're leading worship. 
That was the first words that I ever heard out of the mouth of Doyle Surratt. <laughs> All right? So that's how 31 years of friendship and, uh, and uh, partnership in ministry got started was a guy telling me what to do before he even got to know me. By the way, the three-year-old brat was Cody. Things haven't changed much. <laughs> By the way, is it just me? My wife and I were sitting down here listening to Cody do the announcements, and she leaned over and she says, he sounds just like Doyle. <laughs> it's awesome. Cody's shaking his head. Chelsea was the bun in the oven. She came later in December of that year. Um, you know, what's interesting, as I look back on that, is that I realize that I've benefited a lot from patrons in my life who have seen something in me and just given me opportunities. It's interesting, it wasn't my dad who ratted me out. It was another guy named Byron Klaus, another one of my mentors, who called Doyle and said, hey, Doyle, you've got a kid coming in. He's got potential. Make use of it. And because I'd had the benefit of good mentors to that point, of good patrons, people who saw something in me, when Doyle said, just bring your guitar next week, you're leading worship, I thought, okay. And I showed up, and that really has led to the most fruitful ministry relationship that I've had in life. And, you know, sometimes when people open doors for you, you just need to walk through them and say thank you. And that's what patrons do for us. They open doors for us. Sometimes they're doors that we don't know need to be open. Sometimes that they're doors that we want open. Sometimes they're the doors that we don't want open, but they're the doors that should be open. But patrons see something in us, a potential, that they want to fan into flame. And when they do that, what we owe them is gratitude. This is Memorial Day weekend. It, it, we, we, we joke about it being, you know, barbecues and the extra day off or whatnot. Memorial Day is a secular, a civic holiday designed for us to solemnly remember those in the U.S. armed forces who have given their lives in service of the country. And, you know, in America, the freedoms that we enjoy come from our Constitution, from the Declaration of Independence from Congress every now and then. But you know, all of those are secured because we have people willing to defend us. And they, in a sense, haven't opened a door for us to a free country. And what, in a secular civic sense, do we owe them? Gratitude. Well, that applies in our spiritual life as well. When somebody has been a patron to you, when somebody has provided help, or hospitality, or a warm heart at a point in your spiritual journey where you needed it most, what you owe them is gratitude. If somebody opens a door, walk through it and say thank you. The second kind of person that you meet on your spiritual journey is our peers. These are the people who share the burden of the journey. So for instance, look at verses 3 and 4. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only for I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Or verse 6, greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Or verse 8, greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Look at verse 9, greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachys. Greet Triophena and Tryphosa. And verse 12, those women who worked hard in the Lord, greet 
my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard for you, verse 12. Verse 14, greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermas, Patrobus, Hermas, and the other brothers and sisters with them. That's verse 14. And then verse 21, he says, Timothy, my coworker, sends greetings. I want you to notice three terms that Paul uses to describe other people on the spiritual journey. First term is coworker. In Greek, it's the word synergos, which just is the word we get synergy, synergize from. People who work together, co-workers, okay? Second term that Paul uses is a word that's related to the word for love, agape. It's agapetos. And here it's translated as dear friend. You could also translate it as beloved. The third term that Paul uses to describe these people is the term adelphos, which is brother. In this case, it means brothers and sisters. And I want you to notice about all three of those terms that they're all terms of equality. They're all terms in which there's no hierarchy of authority. A coworker is not your boss or your direct report. A brother or sister is neither your parent nor your child. And a dear friend, a beloved person, is someone who is like you, whom you are united with in bonds of affection. And that is where most of us in the spiritual journey are going to dwell. Because when we look at one another, we are fundamentally equal to one another in Christ. And we should cultivate relationships that are characterized by working together, that are characterized by friendship, and that are even characterized by what you might call a sort of familial harmony, the way the family should be. Those are the kinds of peers that we should cultivate on the spiritual journey. But I want to tell you that equality does not mean sameness. In First uh, Corinthians verse 12, verse 4, Paul writes, Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. In other words, we're all equal, but we have different gifts. And in that equality, we're supposed to use our individuality to help one another. Okay? We're supposed to operate as a family, as a company, as a team. And so what do we owe our peers? We owe them grit. We owe them hard work. Let me give you an illustration of this. Uh, many, many moons ago, when I was in high school, I played varsity basketball. Now, for a basketball team, we were very good academically, okay? And, um, <laughs> yeah. You understand what I mean. I'm glad. You guys are sharp. Nine o'clock service took a little while to understand that. Too early in the morning. So our coach would often become frustrated with us. And, and Coach Edgman, who was also one of my mentors growing up, um, he would make us do drills at the end of practice. And, and how many of you have played basketball on, on a team, especially on a high school or college team, you know that the worst drills are when you have practiced the worst, right? So you either have to run lines or whatever. Our coach would make us do the defensive stance. Now, um, if you don't know what the defensive stance is, it's when you're like this, but it's more of a squat position. You have to get down all the way so that your knee is at a 90-degree angle. And he would come around with a chair. We'd all have to stand there in a squat position. He'd put a chair under us, and if our rear end wasn't touching the chair, we had to squat farther down. That was bad enough. But then he made us crab walk around the perimeter of the entire basketball court. If we were normally bad... It was one time. If we were super bad, it was several times. And here's the worst element of all. If anybody stood up out of the defensive stance during that exercise, he would make 
the whole team start all over again. Now, I, being the philosophically oriented youth that I was, knew that this kind of collective punishment violated the UN Charter on Human Rights. <laughs> now I look back, what I realize is, and we would be yelling at each other, get out, get out, don't get up, you know, tears falling down our 18-year-old eyes. And what I realize now is that he was trying to inculcate in us, to teach us, a team mentality. An individual does not win a basketball game. A team does. And for the team to win a basketball game, the team has to work together. It has to work together when things are going well. It has to work together when things are going badly. Guess what? That's true in the spiritual life as well. In your spiritual journey, you cannot, you should not go it alone. You need people to come alongside you to help. In your rooted groups, you need people to do the readings and do the exercises before they come to, come to your small group. If you're going on the Compton Initiative, it's not like three people paint, one guy stands back and supervises with a donut in his mouth, right? Everybody paints. If you're going to Royal Family Kids Camp, it's great if you're on staff and the counselors have two kids, but you need to relieve those counselors every now and then because they get tired and they need help. I know, I've been there, done that. Understand what I'm saying? We are not individuals on a journey. We are a company of friends and brothers and sisters and co-workers going somewhere together, and we need to shift the burden around to help everybody make it all the way through. And to do that, we need more than the Pareto principle of 20% of the people doing 80% of the work. We need everybody involved to whatever degree they can be. So we owe our peers hard work. We owe them grit. Third kind of people we meet on our spiritual journey are our protégés, the people that we help along the way. Paul mentions two people. He says, greet my dear friend Epinetus in verse 5 who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia, which is in modern Turkey. And then he says at the end of verse 21, Timothy, my co-worker, sends his greetings to you. And we know from other passages in the New Testament that Timothy was probably Paul's greatest protege, the one he invested the most energy in. He, at one point, describes him as his spiritual son. He's his protege. And I want you to simply notice something. We started with patrons, and now we're talking about protégés. And I want to simply say that if you are advancing on the spiritual journey at some point, when you start the spiritual journey, you will have a patron who helps you get started. But as you mature in Christ, you will become a patron and you will start to have protégés that you help get started on their spiritual journeys. This is just the natural spiritual progression of things. This, this is true in biology, right? All of us have parents. Those of us who become parents have kids. And we might say, I am never, when we're kids, I am never going to become like my parents. And then we have kids and we are exactly like our parents. <laughs> am I right? And why is that? It's because in the natural, there is a progression from needing help to giving help. In the spiritual life, there is the similar progression from needing help to giving help. It's natural for you to move from 
being a protege with a patron to being a patron with a protege. And Paul talks about two of his protégés here, Epinetus and Timothy. And both of them illustrate what we owe our protégés, but in different ways. And if I had to summarize what we owe our protégés, I'd use one word. It's the word grace. Now, the standard way we think about grace is that it's God's unmerited favor. When we were sinners, God loved us, and he forgave us our sins because of Jesus Christ. And that's, in fact, what we find in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christianity in Asia, that is modern Turkey, is an example of that kind of grace, of unmerited favor, of forgiveness of sins. But the second sense of grace has to do really more with spiritual gifts. And so notice what Paul says in Romans 12, 6. We have different gifts according to the grace, same word, given to each of us. And then he goes on to list a variety of different spiritual gifts. Timothy is an example of this. Paul saw in Timothy some grace, some gift that God had given to him, and he wanted to help Timothy develop that. And so what we owe our protégés is both unmerited favor, the forgiveness of sins when they offend us, but also we need to help them develop the spiritual gifts that God has given them. Let me give you a biblical example of this. Um, Paul, I was just on a tour retracing Paul's missionary journeys. According to Acts, Paul took three missionary journeys. On the first missionary journey, it was Paul, Barnabas, and a young man named John Mark, who was Barnabas's cousin. And in Acts 13, 13, and let me tell you, if anything is chapter 13, verse 13, uh, anywhere, you know something bad is going to happen, right? So in Acts 13, 13, it just says, Luke says in the book of Acts, that John Mark left. He just kind of left uh, Paul and Barnabas and went back home. Doesn't say why, it just says he did that. Skip ahead a couple chapters to chapter 15. Paul and Barnabas are in Jerusalem. They're ready to go on their second missionary journey. Paul proposes a strategy. Barnabas says, let's bring along John Mark, my cousin. And the Bible tells us that there arose such a sharp disagreement that Paul and Barnabas actually parted company. And Paul got another partner named Silas to go on his missionary journey. And he took off. Barnabas took John Mark to Cyprus. It's a very interesting thing. Because it indicates that even in the New Testament church, sometimes well-meaning, orthodox, good Christians did not get along. They had disagreements. And the disagreement in this case was over a protege. So that's first part of the story. John Mark abandons the first missionary journey. Second part of the story, Paul and Barnabas divide over Barnabas wanting to bring John Mark back along on the second missionary journey. But we know from later letters that Paul wrote, 1 Timothy, Colossians, Philemon, that he mentions Mark, that is John Mark. And he says especially, Mark is helpful to me. Now that's interesting. Because Barnabas continued to see the potential in John Mark and rehabilitated him. Both by giving him unmerited favor and forgiving the fact that he'd abandoned the first missionary journey, but also continuing to develop that spiritual gift in him so that later in life, even Paul was able to say, now Mark is helpful to me. That's what we owe our protégés. We owe them grace. Now, I have a personal experience of this. 
Because, you know, I worked with Doyle for many years. Now, I happened to work with Doyle my first job straight out of college. I was a philosophy major, and when I started working with Doyle, I just graduated, and I was going to seminary to earn my graduate degree in theology. Folks, I was wicked smart. Notice I said past tense, okay? I was wicked smart, and I knew it. And not only that, I was like every other 21-year-old single male on the face of the planet. I knew better than anybody else who was older than me, right? If there's trouble to be started in a church, I guarantee you it's going to be a 21-year-old single male. I know that from personal experience. I was the trouble starter, right? The Doyle, on the other hand, was about 30, 31 years of age, and he was trying to do new things. And guess what? When you are a know-it-all 21-year-old in grad school and you're working for a 31-year-old who's trying to do new things, it's going to be like this all day long. <laughs> and so we increasingly butted heads because I just didn't like what he was doing. And meh, 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 meh. I mean, it must have been what it was like listening to me. Finally, Doyle had had enough. He took me to Mykonos. I hate Greek food. At least I did then. Now I kind of like it. Especially Lukamatis, the little donuts. Those are great. Baklava, wonderful. Um, <laughs> if it involves honey, I'm there. Uh, anyway, Doyle took me to Mykonos. I hated Greek food at that point, so I knew. It was kind of like 13-13. I just knew something bad was going to happen at a Greek restaurant. And Doyle confronted me. He said, this, this is what's been happening over the last few months. And he used very colorful language to get to the practical application, but basically he said, you need to get right or get left, right? Boy, that was a hard period. But you know what I said? Yeah, okay. So I went to work for another mentor, Dr. Jim Bradford, at Newport Mesa Christian Center down in Costa Mesa, Another wonderful mentoring experience. In fact, he's the one who, 20 years later, hired me into the job that I'm currently working on. But here's the interesting thing. Doyle and Connie always extended me grace in the sense of forgiveness, unmerited favor. We always kept the personal relationship good. But Doyle knew at that stage in my life that he needed one set of spiritual gifts for what was happening in the church, and I did not have them yet. I needed to go to a less radical environment to figure those things out on my own. So that six years, or however many years after that massive confrontation at Mykonos, I was able to come back on staff and work again at the church. That's what we owe our protégés, because I guarantee you that if you have a protégé, they will make your life hard at some point. If you have a kid, it's going to be hard at some point. If you have an employee, it's going to be hard at some point. But it's a learning opportunity, and you need to extend them grace, both to forgive their transgressions, but also to continue to build on those native potentials that God has placed in their lives. What we owe our protégés is grace. Finally, pains. And I'm just going to go quickly over this. Because... Pains, quite frankly, are painful, right? Notice what, um, notice uh, two people that, that Paul mentions. Verse 7, greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews, who have been in prison with me. They are at standing among the apostles, and they were in Christ Jesus before I was. And then skip down to verse 10, greet Apelles, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. Here Paul is talking about pains that come from outside the community, persecution and oppression. 
He wasn't saying that Andronicus and Junia or Apelles were the pains. He was saying that the people who mistreated them were the pains. So sometimes pains come to us from outside forces on our spiritual journey, but sometimes they come from inside, from inside company, people who are Christians and who should know better. So notice what Paul says in verses 17 and following. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. When I'm talking about pains, I'm not talking about the kinds of pains that protégés give us in the ordinary course of their development and maturity. I'm talking about trolls, internet trolls in your spiritual journey. The people who are just negative, they're never going to learn, they're never going to change, they just make your life difficult. And I don't want to talk about what you owe them, because quite frankly, what Paul says you owe them is some distance. Keep away from them. Instead, I want to talk about the growth that can happen in your encounter with these people because when we encounter opposition externally from people who persecute or oppress us or make our life difficult, we can grow in our moral character and how we respond as well as our confidence in our faith. That's what Paul says happened with Apelles, that he withstood the test and remained faithful. But you know, when we're talking about people within the church, Church trolls, we'll just call them. There's your new term for the day. Church trolls. People who should know better, but just want to make mischief for everybody because, doggone it, they're just like that and they're not going to change. You know what? When we identify those people, we just need to kind of push them to the margin, gently, kindly, politely, and firmly. But in the process, we can grow in our discernment and in our discretion because we are identifying people who don't mean well for the body of Christ. So when it comes to the pains in your life, what you can experience is growth. We've talked about four kinds of people that you meet on your spiritual journey. The patrons who make the journey possible, we owe them gratitude. The peers who share the burden along the way, we owe them grit. The protégés we help ourselves that we help along the way, we owe them grace. And then the pains who make the journey hard, we can experience growth from our encounters with them. Two last points that I want to make. As you look at the list of 27 names of 30 or so people that Paul alludes to in this passage, you're going to find that they are Greeks and Jews, that they're men and women, that they come from high socioeconomic statuses like Phoebe, middle-class statuses like Priscilla and Aquila who were tent makers with Paul, and that were even slaves. There, there's a couple names at the end of chapter 16 where it's Tertius and, and Cordus. That's Latin for third and fourth. Those are common slave names. Primus, Secundus, Tertius, Cordus. If a master couldn't bother himself to give a personal name, he'd just say one, two, three, four. And so when you look at this list of names, you need to realize that your protégés, your peers, and your patrons cannot be defined by race or ethnicity or sex or socioeconomic status because God loves everybody and wants to pull everybody into the spiritual journey. And he can use people in a lower socioeconomic status to help those in a higher economic status. He can help Jews to help Greeks, Greeks to help Jews, 
Anglos to help Hispanics, Hispanics to help Asians, Asians to help blacks. He can use anybody to help anybody else. It doesn't matter what your socioeconomic status is. So don't look at the external markers of a person when you're looking for help on your spiritual journey. That's not going to determine who will be there for you. But as you're going through your spiritual journey, ask, who has been my patron? Who has helped me? Who is helping me carry the burden today? And who can I help along their way? But whatever you do, don't be a pain to other people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the grace that you have given us in your Son, Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us so that we can follow him and be in your presence forevermore. Lord, as we have been thinking about the people in our spiritual journey, we are thankful for our patrons, for the people who led us to Christ and helped us along the way. We're thankful for the people we're sitting next to, our small group members, our ministry team workers. Lord, we want those opportunities to work with others. Help us to take the initiative and seize those opportunities. And finally, Lord, open our eyes to the people around us who you have given grace to help. Help our protégés through us so that we can all arrive with Christ at our destination together. It's in his name we pray. Amen.